Hello, my name is Scott Good. I'm a composer, conductor, and trombonist, and you are listening to Talking Blues. So, one of the greatest performances that I ever saw was in Ottawa at the Chamber Fest, a composition by you. Oh my goodness. With. The Griffin Trio. I think it was you, Roberto Occupinti, and Daphnis Prieto. That's right. I was mesmerized by that. Do you remember that night? Uh, very much so. Very much so. Um, it was an intense uh, performance. We'd been um, working all week in, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, Daphnis had come up from uh, Florida myself and Roberto from uh, Toronto, and we all gathered in Ottawa for the week to rehearse the, the concert and put it together. So that was the culmination of a week's effort. So I was mesmerized. Like when I s- stood there, um, partly because I think Daphnis is such a like, ridiculously talented drummer. Sure. But the piece that you had was so fascinating to me. And the piece, and I don't know if I described this properly, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but you have a piano trio plus like a, a jazz trio, I guess, um, consisting of trombone, bass, and drums. Was there somebody else? Or is that, that was it, right? Well, for each piece was a bit different. So that was the total ensemble. But right. for the, for, there was some arranging I did and original composing. For my original composition uh, called Wu Jing, I was actually conducting and not playing, so it was a quintet. Okay. Yeah. But it was an interesting composition of, or combination of jazz and classical. And it just seemed to be, and maybe I'm taking this totally wrong, but there were times when, when Daphnis, the drummer, was just keeping everything together while these two components were playing opposite one another. I don't know if that's the right way to explain it. <laughs> but it was unbelievable to me. Thank you. <laughs> How did you come up with that idea? Um, okay, well, I'll give a little bit of, more of the path. Um, it was a, a, f- a couple of years before the, 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 the concert. And uh, Roman Boris, who's uh, the, uh, not only the cellist, but also kind of, the, kind of runs uh, the, um, the Griffin Trio, approached me and he, he knew that uh, we knew that we wanted to work creatively together. And he wanted me to do something for the Griffin Trio. And he actually, he started with a question, and the question he asked me was, if you could add any instrument to our group, the trio, what would it be? And I answered, drum set. <laughs> because um, I knew that, first off, that's a bit unusual. I actually love, I adore the drum set as an instrument. I find it incredibly interesting to listen to. Um, and I, I'm very curious as a composer to explore its... Uh, expressiveness and its way that it can interact with different ensembles. So I thought that that would be a really interesting um, way for our project to start would be to bring the, the drum set in. And as the idea kind of percolated in my head a little bit, then I realized I wanted to add the bass as well. The bass is acts to me when you have these all these instruments together as kind of the instrument that's going to glue it, glue it all together. It... It's especially when you have somebody who's sensitive to playing in the jazz style, mm-hmm. so who can 
can uh, can play that way, but is also sensitive to playing the classical style. So you get that perfectly personified in somebody like Roberto Acapinti. So that's how the the piece started. Um, Sorry, did you when he asked that question? Did yeah. you have the answer immediately? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. It's just uh, it's it's. Sometimes ideas come to me very fast, and that one came to me very fast. And I was thinking a lot about the drum set, to be honest, at, at that point in, in my stage of my development as a composer. And I wanted to, I had done other projects with drum set, and I wanted to take it a little further. And what was interesting after that was um, that uh, I didn't actually, he asked me if I had a player in mind, and there were a few few drum set players that I thought could could be good for this project. Um, but he had uh, the Griffin Tree had already done some some crossover projects with Daphnis, so oh, he okay. actually said, "Well, have you ever heard of Daphnis Prieto?" And I had not, so he said, "Well, can you go listen to him a bit? Uh, he has a website and all that. Just go check it out. Tell me what you think." And so I went and listened to it, and I was kind of blown away. Like I realized that this was an incredibly uh, talented uh, professional drum set player, and it would be quite an honor to work with him. So I, I, I got back right away and said, yes, please, I would love to work with, uh, with Daphnis if he's interested. And so that next stage actually was then to approach Daphnis and see if he would be interested in working with us. So I sent him a bunch of my music and told him some ideas about uh, what I wanted to do with the music. And he listened to a number of things I'd done. And I sent him, I'd, at, at that point, I had certainly written for drum set, um, in particular for big band, I'd written a couple of jazz band pieces. So they had, of course, drum set parts in them. And I had actually included a little bit of drum set into my classical compositions as well. Um, just sort of experimenting with my saxophone concerto, in particular Babbitt, and another work I'd written called Shock Therapy Variations. Had Both of them had extensive drum set parts. So I sent those to him so he could get a sense of what I did. I guess he liked it and uh, said, "Yeah, sure. Let's try and figure this out. Let's let's do something together." So, and his playing was phenomenal. <laughs> like I was just, I couldn't believe what I was witnessing, and I don't know if I'd ever seen a drummer play like that. Mm. Um, was that all written down, or how much of that is Daphnis, and how much of that is your instructions for my piece uh, Wu Jing? It's actually was um, uh, the foundational structure of the music itself. It was built around the idea that the drum set part would be almost entirely not written. So I wrote down very, very little for him in it. Um, Whereas for all the rest of the instruments, every single note they played was notated. So why would you choose not to notate the drums? There's a uh, this is a, this is interesting. It does get kind of uh, deep into uh, philosophical into music making, but I've kind of dove dove down both rabbit holes. One of extremely highly notated music, um, and then on the other side, uh, completely improvised music. And I'm also interested in this in not just experiential way, but also in the the science behind it. Like I, I have you know, research some of this. And what they've discovered um, through studying people's uh, brainwaves, MRI and that sort of thing, is that when improvisation compared to reading music actually uses very, very different parts of our minds. 
mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and it's actually quite the same. I can relate this to people maybe if they, they don't do improvised music and that sort of thing. It's actually very similar to the difference in the mind between, say, writing or reading or having a conversation. Right. So when you have a conversation, you're improvising. We're improvising right now. It's not planned. And um, but this is much like what it is in, in music. And consequently, with because you're using different parts of the minds, I think very different music or very different words are going to be used in a conversation, say, than if you wrote everything down. Right. And it's the same in music. It's going to be a very different kind of music when you... Um, write it down versus you improvise. And one little story to share about this that I just, I love this, uh, was a story about John Coltrane. Um, so he was playing and uh, at some club and somebody, uh, some very enthusiastic uh, person came up to him. He says, oh, Mr. Coltrane, I've, uh, I just wanted you to know I've, I've transcribed all of your solos from, I don't know, Love Supreme or something like that. Here, right. here, here, look, check, check, look at it. And John Coltrane's like, whoa, let me check it out, you know? And he's reading through it and he says, I could never play that. <laughs> so, um, and actually another, another interesting um, the thing that I read, uh, sort of to me dealing with this issue, but from, a, from another perspective, uh, more about how we make judgments, um, is a, a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that one, but um, it's about how we make um, sometimes the, the, the most wisest and most intelligent uh, choices in the blink in a, in a tiny fraction of time. It's an instantaneous understanding. Whereas if we sort of pondered this, the decision and thought about it for a while, we might actually come up with a, a not as good decision. Hmm. So the act of, of contemplation and thinking can actually be distracting uh, from what our true sort of gut instinct is telling us to do. Okay, but yeah. so you have multiple instruments. Yes. But you choose only one instrument to be improvisational yeah. and all the others to be notated. That's right. Um, and and based, based on what you said, why would you not have had part of it notated, then improvised, and then back to notation or, or some form of that? Like, what's the difference between uh, the way you had it where one instrument is not notated versus having an instrument be both? Right. Uh, well, for this, uh, every piece of music to me is, is, is an opportunity to explore different ideas. And that was just sort of a foundational idea for this piece was to be, okay, I'm going to write something. Well, I should say also working with Daphnis, he's such an extraordinary improviser. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, wanting to capitalize on that. But also just to, can I create something that can work with this kind of a dynamic that right. will be satisfying for both parties to be able to to do this right um so that was part of it and sometimes i do set like little goals out for myself before i even start i'm saying okay this is going to be the kind of an idea for this and i sort of interested in it's a, a a sort of a dual a complementary dual kind of concept like the yin and yang so that to me is 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 daphnis is the yin energy and the ensembles the yang energy and then they're coming together and i'm hoping they'll swim together to create something totally unique and right which which i think you accomplished that night thank you did you feel that way because i always wonder about i often talk to musicians about what i thought of the concert versus what they thought of the concert (laughs) and it's very different right um but to me it was spectacular i don't know what it was like for you to be like it must be different for you because one 
you're up there playing or conducting yes. and also because it's your piece. So I don't know how you view <laughs> the piece and that experience because you're coming from such a different place. Sure. But what was it like for you that night? Um, overall, I was, I was very, very happy um, with the performance of Wu Jing and the performances in general of the whole night. We did four pieces that night. Um, and uh, it was very hard to put together so there was a lot of joy in having it come together well right. and getting a really strong uh, response from the audience um, because it was pretty tense leading up to the <laughs> concert to be honest um, and I have had a subsequent uh, performance of, uh, of Wu Jing and I did make some revisions to the piece um, because it was a little bit too hard for what it needed to be and I knew it was going to be very challenging music. So I decided to change a couple of things so that would help it come together a little bit quicker, in particular with the way the rhythms were notated and the meter. Um, so I changed that a lot. Or not a lot. I changed it subtly, but in a way that may, I think make it a little bit more easier to grasp. So in terms of your question about feeling about what I did in the moment of the, the concert that night in Ottawa, I was generally very, very happy. I was relieved and uh, I w did want to go back and touch on a few things however that quality of the, the notated versus the non-notated did not change at all and in fact I did notate small little things in the drum set I even took a little bit more of it out I wanted it to be very freeing for the drums you haven't recorded this on a on an album or not officially no no is there plans to do that and, um, and if you do then doesn't that kind of capture it and make it concrete and that improvisational thing is, I mean, it's captured and it's recorded, but yeah. may, it may never be duplicated. Well, I mean, uh, think about an album like Kind of Blue, right? right? I mean, that was almost entirely improvised with no rehearsal, yet you could probably find thousands of people around the globe who could sing along with all the yeah, solos yeah. and that sort of thing. So it's a, we're talking now about a strange phenomenon of the recorded medium, Um recording improvisation which then makes it um something permanent right that's almost a whole other topic in its own but in terms of the the life of the piece i would like it i mean ideally it would be interesting for me and i hope i do get to experiences to hear other drummers play it right and and when they maybe when they hear a recording they're like oh that's a that's a piece i'd be interested in playing and then when they go see the part realize like oh you know, it's free. Maybe they'll explore that freedom themselves because I could imagine it playing very differently than, than Daphnis did. Mm -hmm. um, although I was tried to write something that I thought would be an interesting challenge for him and that would help bring out some of the real strong qualities in his playing, at least the, the, the strong qualities that I, I, I really admired in his playing. That I, th I, I hope this piece would be a platform for that. I could see other players of playing in a very different way also coming up with something really beautiful and unexpected I mean that would be wonderful a mm -hmm. wonderful experience so you know in terms of a recording um, it would be yeah Daphnis's version of the piece but again like you can you can hear all the jazz standard pieces the the, the composition themselves stays the same right. there's a something that you can hear um, but each 
interpretation has its own quality. So this piece has a bit of that as well. And But even for classical music, I mean, you can listen to a Mozart uh, symphony or, or such and hear group A play it and then hear group B play it. It sounds quite different. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite different. No, it is different to say that as, a, as yeah, the breadth yeah. of in between jazz interpretations. Yeah. But that also really interests me a lot too. You know, the very fine qualities of interpretation of a piece right. you know where everything can be written out but not everything is ever written out you know there's all there's all kinds of subtlety in the playing that changes between different players and you have to deal with that on a, on a regular basis yes. right because yeah. you compose and then you yeah. hear it play back and yes. and does it ever surprise you when you when you basically written down the notes and say this is it and you give it to a quartet or, or to a uh, a symphony and and then they play it back and then does it ever sound completely different from what you'd imagined because of the nuances sure um maybe not completely but yeah i'd say to varying degrees um i'm a fairly experienced composer now that i've gone through this um process many times and with each time in my experience gained it becomes a little less unpredictable I know, I kind of know what things are going to sound like right. now. I've also conducted and premiered many pieces. So I have that uh, and played them. And so I have that experience of getting a score, a raw score. And, and so I'm actually pretty good at just looking at any piece of music and, and having a sense of what it's going to sound like. Wow. Okay. Um, so w- yeah. let's go back to how that happened. Okay, yeah, sure. So you, you play the trombone. Yes. Is that... Your first instrument, or did it start with a piano or something else? <laughs> well, my very first instrument was ukulele, and uh, my, which my mother taught me. And then the next instrument I played was recorder, which is also what my mother taught me, and then was brought into the school. And then I um, sang in a choir at the school. So I had those three experiences until I got to grade five. And it was in grade five that we were allowed to take up either band or 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 strings in my school which Mm -hmm. is what a wonderful privilege to have that choice i wish it so much for kids Uh, Mm -hmm. i don't want to get political but uh, (laughs) at any rate a little side note there um i definitely knew that i wanted to be in the band um however um my first choice was not the trombone Uh, so so my band teacher gave us the opportunity to try every instrument and then we had a list of the top three, first choice, second choice, third choice, that we would we would write down. Right. And he would take all of those results and try and put a band together. Because he had to have a, he only had so many instruments and he had to have a balanced band so that we could actually, you know, play some simple pieces. But, you know, he didn't want to have like, you know, 40 flutes and a tuba, you know, it wouldn't, but it wouldn't sound great. he's not auditioning you. Like this is his. No, there was no addition. If you wanted to be in the music program, you just—it was just public school education. You you got to do it, but he wanted to. He let us all try it, and then and and then from uh, trying the instrument, we could choose our top three choices. So um, that's just the way it was done. Then that might be different in different schools. I don't know, but that's that's what was offered by uh, Doug Manning. Was actually my teacher. He worked at many schools back in the eighties. Then, Um, so. Uh, the previous summer before that there was a, a family friends that we uh, we went to visit and um, one of the daughters who was just a couple years older than me 
uh, was playing the horn and she brought out her horn and played the, the horn and I was just, oh man, I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So when I went into my choices, I was like, you know, I wasn't, there was no choice to be had. I was a horn player, so I put horn at the top and I just assumed that of course I was going to get the horn. But we had to have three choices, and he said it was very important. Make sure to put three choices, you know. Couldn't put horn, horn, horn. So uh, my next choice, I thought, well, you know, tuba. You know, that looks pretty cool. You know, it's big and shiny. All right, I'll put tuba. And then the third choice, I was like, well, yeah, trombone looks kind of neat. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be playing the horn, but yeah, I could I could see playing the trombone. It looks kind of neat, too, the slide. And then, so anyway, we put in our results, and then a week later, uh, we come back, and he'd assigned me the trombone. And I was utterly heartbroken, and I, was, I couldn't believe it. So I, I went up to it, and I said, uh, you know, Mr. Manning, why did you give me the trombone? And he told me because of, I was the only person who put trombone anywhere on the list. <laughs> and he had a lot of people who put French horn under the top of the list. So he gave me the trombone. Anyway, my disappointment was quickly abated by being handed a new instrument and being able to take it home. So, and I have no regrets since. I, I love being a trombone player, actually, because as I found out as my musical travels continued, uh, trombone is actually an instrument that finds itself in many, many different situations mm-hmm. uh, in many different genres, which I've take, I'd like to say that I've taken quite large um influenced by or I, I i experimented or many many travels and all kinds of different musical genres certainly with jazz of course right. Right? so there's the jazz band but also like brazilian music african music and even like when i go to play sometimes i'll play with arabic musicians and because of the slide and the the, the, the way that you can move the pitch on a trombone I can actually play in the quarter tone styles or different different intonations. I played with Balinesian musicians who use different kind of scales and modalities. So it's a really wonderful instrument to explore music with. Mm-hmm. Last night I went to see the Royal Conservatory Orchestra. Right. And I noticed the trombone there on, yes. on pieces and obviously in classical music as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that was my main pursuit, actually, as a trombonist. So, um, you know, sort of continuing on from from grade four, I did end up going to a high school in Toronto with a strong music program at at North Toronto Collegiate Institute. And um, it had a, a great orchestra and symphonic band. And it was actually playing in the orchestra. My parents didn't listen to a lot of classical music, when I was growing up, um, more more of a rock and roll kind of house, so um, I had a lot of exposure to classical music, uh, but it was through the orchestra playing at North Toronto, and also that the the music program demanded that if you were going to be in it, you had to have private lessons. Right. So I started studying privately, and my teacher introduced me to orchestra music. I absolutely fell in love with it. I as soon as I heard uh, listened to orchestra music carefully. And in particular, uh, Brahms and Shostakovich were the two composers whose symphonies, is, I just, I, I actually can, you, you're, you're mentioning to me about, uh, you know, coming up with, with, uh, with uh, cathartic moments. And this certainly would be one, which was coming home from my, le- my trombone lesson, I was assigned to learn the, the short little trombone part to Brahms' first symphony. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he showed me the music, but it's this tiny little bit of music. He's like, oh, no, but you have to go get the recording and go listen to the symphony 
and and uh, so that you you know w- uh, the context of what you're playing this short little bit. Right. So I went and I got my tape. You know, this is back tape. I had my Walkman, and I can still remember it. It was such an important moment for me. Is uh, bringing it home, unwrapping, sitting on my uh, the the couch in front of it was, it was September. It was the beginning of the school year. Beautiful September day, and um, slipping in that tape, putting on the headphones, cranking it, of course, because I was a rock guy. It was everything was loud. <laughs> And that first movement opening of Brahms' first symphony came on and just, like, my life was forever changed. I was like, I love this music. I couldn't believe music could be so powerful and just shockingly original to me, even though it had been written, like, 150 years ago or something like that. And, um, yeah, and then after that was discovering Shostakovich, which we played in the in the orchestra. We played the Fifth Symphony and getting a recording of that um eugene ormandy with Phil- philadelphia orchestra and on a lp and wearing that the 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 needle down to the nub just <laughs> listening to it again and again and again i just love that music and it just it just went on from there okay so before that moment yeah you said you you grew up you you were a rock guy did rock music was that ever an option to pursue for yourself or did you ever play rock music with your trombone yeah for sure I mean I've I've um well I mean it's it's never been a straight path for me mm-hmm. so lots of things have come in and out um it, I did pursue an into university at that that stage really quite focused on classical music with 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 some jazz casually right. I would play sort of in jazz bands like I play all written out jazz music okay so like when you're in a jazz band you could have solos but in general what everybody's playing in the in the in the in the jazz orchestra is all composed right. so I was playing those parts um, and then I went through school but it's once I moved back to Toronto after my school and started meeting people that um, I started to have some interest in in maybe playing different different styles of music and there was a a couple of opportunities that came by. Um, one was the a friend of mine, another, and I was playing bass trombone at the time. Another bass trombone playing friend of mine needed a sub for a band he was playing in called G. Um, and <laughs> I went. How do you spell that? G U H. Okay. Yeah, and um, I went and played with this group and. No, I wouldn't exactly call it rock music. It's it's a it's a kind of music that's pretty hard to describe. But there are drums and guitars and that sort of thing. Um, and it was, but a lot of composition and a lot of somewhat you could maybe call it avant-garde rock right. with world music and jazz influences. You could say that theatrical at times. Uh, there's bagpipes in the group, so it's it's a hard to describe. But it, 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 the the pulsing rhythm and also soloing and some and improvisation sort of woven all throughout, just thrilling. I just loved it. I was very green at it, but I I, I enjoyed it. And um, and then a little while later, um, a friend of mine said, "Oh, I'm in this band and they're looking for a trombone player. Would you be interested?" And I said, "Well, maybe." And I met the the singer songwriter, Michael Kaler. And he said, uh, he said to me, yeah, I like to have a sort of a, I, I can't remember if he used this word, but I think it was a Dixieland kind of horn section. So I want to have a trumpet and a clarinet and a trombone. But I tend to think of the trombone as the lead. Mm-hmm. 
do you want to be in the band? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> because as a trombone player, you often are kind of background. Yeah, so yeah, to have yeah. somebody say like, oh, I really want your instrument to be out front and be doing stuff. So I would say it was those two groups that really uh, brought me into the band scene. And I ended up playing with a number of groups over the years. And um, I would say now my playing is, I, I don't really play classical music much anymore. Oh, okay. So... When did you decide, and I don't know if it was the moment you put that tape into the cassette player, Yeah. when did you decide that you wanted to pursue music as a career? Um, it's sort of, it was like this, uh, how can I say this, it was like the ooze that just came over me and suddenly all encompassed me, you know. I always loved music, I was drawn to it, and eventually I found, even though there were other things I was interested in, academically and maybe professionally I found that those other interests started to fade to what music felt to me until I couldn't actually really imagine doing anything else I was about at the age of 16 okay and at this point you're still a player more than anything else you're not a composer you're not a conductor yes I was mostly a player at that point Um, I was just starting to dabble in composition okay and then how does that, this, from where you come from with the school band, how does that, um, or how do you grow as an artist to become somebody who can improvise on the trombone? How did you learn improvisation? I, it's, it, it, I answer this question in the same way I would answer it, say, to my students or anybody ask me. Uh, the, for, the, one of the best ways to say to learn how to compose or learn how to improvise or learn how to play the trombone or learn how to play chess or anything is to just do it. Right. Like you have to just start doing it. Now, when it comes to improvisation, one of the things you have to do is get bravery. Because if you, if you come from a tradition where all you're playing is everything that has been written down for you, it's actually quite unnerving to say, no, no, you're going to actually, you're going to make up all, all the notes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, we're not going to tell you what to do. Um, now, I'd been playing in some jazz and listening to it. And also, I, you know, I mean, I was a composer and sort of before I started doing improvised rock music, I'd started composing okay, so- impro- improvised music. So I had spent, like as a composer spent quite a bit of time at the piano improvising and working on my materials. Okay, so tell me, how did the piano come in? It's a complex path. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it is. Um, But how did the piano come in to this whole thing? So did you start learning the piano at at around the same time as the trombone? Um, Okay, um, the piano actually came in when I was in high school. So I think it was when I was 15, or 16 as I said I decided I wanted to go into music at that point I was going to be a, like an orchestral trombonist that's what I was kind of thinking right that's what I was going to pursue it was what I was most interested in and most participating in I was just starting to dabble in composition a little bit but I didn't have a piano I was actually using my guitar I play guitar as well um, <laughs> so that just sort of you know crept in right um, and uh, and um, so anyway my parents were like oh okay you want to go into music and um well, maybe we should see what you need to skills you need to have to become a musician or get into music school. And so we went to the U of T music department, see what they expected you to be able to do. And one of them was you, you were expected to be able to play the piano to a certain degree, either to get in or to eventually graduate right. from this school. And I went and looked at the level they expected. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I better start 
learning this instrument because this looks really, really difficult to me. Even, you know, the like it wasn't for to be a piano major. Right. Just to be a trombonist, this is the level of piano they were expecting you to be able to play. And, and, and I really had to hardly played any piano at all. It's just there was one at school I would... You know, so so anyway, uh, my uh, my grandmother got wind of this, and she actually bought me a a really nice keyboard that had weighted keys and stuff, so that I could start practicing piano. And as soon as I got that piano, I didn't really end up wanting to practice a lot of my uh, piano music for my lessons because I thought it was pretty boring. I was <laughs> I was already studying Shostakovich symphonies and things, so it was hard to uh, you know play this kind of very simple like do, yeah, do, yeah. Do, do, kind of piano music. But I love to improvise at the piano, and that, so it, it, as soon as the 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 piano came into my life, it really opened the gates for composition. Okay, so because I was wondering if you actually composed yeah. on the trombone, <laughs> so, a little bit to start. Oh, okay, a little bit to start. Yeah, I mean that's where my roots come from. Was actually, and it wasn't even necessarily composing so much. It was more like I would hear songs and I want to uh, write them down. I wanted to be able to write the songs down that I was hearing. So it was really transcribing that I did first, and I did use my trombone to help me with that. And was that did that come easy to you? No, it's pretty hard actually. And then what about the piano? Playing it was that easy? N- no, nothing. Nothing has been easy. <laughs> wait, wait, how about the trombone? Was that easy? No, I wouldn't say it was easy. I mean, I wouldn't say maybe. Um, I mean, I did do well in it. Right. You know, I mean, I uh, even at, at the young ages, I was sort of usually the first chair in most of the groups I was doing in because I could play a little bit better than other people, and maybe it's because I had these different other musical backgrounds like playing some ukulele and I sang in choir and I played recorder and I did play a little guitar too. And so I had a, a, a network of, of things that um, helped me learn music maybe a bit faster than others. Yeah, yeah. But I was always surrounded by excellent musicians. And I never felt like a superstar. Um, you know, I was always, I was always around enough people to be humble, you know, uh, so about my skills. I would imagine your mom and maybe your dad as well had a major impact on on you getting into music, the fact that your mom got your recorder and the ukulele at a very early <laughs> She'd probably age. be surprised for you to say that, but I think it is true for sure. Um, so when you said, I want to pursue music, and, and the fact that your grandmother bought your piano, obviously there was support behind the decision, but yeah. how did they feel about you pursuing music? I think, actually, it, it, this is this is there's a funny little answer to this, because um, when I first told them... Um, I mean, my parents have always been very supportive of me. So, you know, there was no question that they wanted me to pursue the things right. that made my heart pump. But um, they're also practical people. <laughs> and so my mother uh, said to me, well, what happens if you lose an arm? Because at that moment I was, you know, just a trombonist. But it's, it's, it, is, it is an occupation that's reliant on very stringent physical capacities. So... Um, I thought that was an interesting, and I do know musicians, by the way, in no, in no, you know, in all seriousness, that have lost their careers due to, uh, right. even though they've been training for many years, in one moment they uh, an accident happens or they lose all that training and they they can't play their instrument anymore. So it's a, it is a real concern. What did you answer? What my you... answer was sorry, I'm, I go on a bit here. Uh, my answer was that uh, I would compose. Oh, okay. Yeah. So and she's like, but you don't write music. And I was like, well, I will. <laughs> I want to. Wow. Yeah. So that was kind of a, an interesting thing. So in a way, it's, a, it's also a bit of a side pocket. Uh, you know, uh, it's like my, the uh, portfolio diversity. 
So, your love of playing music and trombone, and you said you wanted to join an orchestra. Yeah. The, when did the love of comp- composition come into play? At the same time? Well, it was creeping in. The trombone definitely was my focus. Um, but when I was in high school, a very good friend of mine, who uh, is still my, I would say, my closest friend, Richard Maskell, he was actually composing music at that time. And I remember uh, him writing pieces and then having them performed and sort of witnessing that and thinking, wow, what an amazing experience that is. You wrote that music and it sounds so great. I loved his pieces. They sounded so unique. And it's it, so that sort of put the bug in my, uh, behind me to, to, to pursue that. And um, so I did a little bit of composing when I was in high school. And actually, in my grade 13 years, this is back when they had grade 13, in my music class, we had an opportunity to either do an arrangement or an original composition for the band at the school, uh, just like a one-minute thing. And most people did an arrangement of like a little piano piece, but I decided to write my own piece for it. And um, the my band teacher at the end of it said, if you want to turn this into a full-length piece, we'll, I'll premiere it. And wow. so I was like, oh, okay, neat. So I actually... So t- before that, yeah. when you heard that piece, yes. played that segment or whatever, yeah. played by the band, what did that feel like? It was amazing. It was totally amazing. It was way too short. It only lasted like a couple of minutes, right? Because <laughs> they had to read everybody's piece down. Yeah, yeah. But it went by and just hearing, you know, the, the plunking out at the piano, all by hand, of course, because I didn't have my first computer. I was 28. Um, so everything was by hand. And uh, scribbling all out, writing all parts, quite a bit of work. So there's that feeling of work, and then and then suddenly it all happening at the same time, and hearing those tones, playing it back to you. Oh, I was I was very hooked. Um, so I knew it was something I wanted to do more of, but it was very short. And could you picture or hear the different parts? Well, to a degree, um, and that was a pretty simple piece. It was just a one minute little thing where I didn't really do much in it. I basically did one thing over and over again. Right. Um, so but yeah it was but i will i will i will follow up on that with with where this led to because he invited me to write a piece this is when i was going to music school so i was leaving toronto i went to eastman school in rochester to study trauma and performance as i said i was pursuing that but i had this project to take with me to write a symphonic band piece about eight minute piece and um as it turned out, I, uh, I wrote the piece. Uh, I was very, very busy at the school. So busy that I didn't have time to even write the parts out. And I, I needed to get to my teacher. I sent him the score. And I said, here's the score. I'm sorry, I don't have the parts done. And he said, oh, I'll do the parts for you. So it was an incredible Sorry, gift. can you explain that? Oh, okay. So a score is... Um, so this was for a full symphonic band. So there was flutes and clarinets right. and saxophones and horns and trumpets and percussion and tr- huge. Like it was... Uh, probably about 30 staves right and then so creating a score is you create up the score as all those parts going at the same time so that the conductor can follow along however the players individually can't they need their own part right so you have to extract what they're going to play just what they're going to play on the the first flute part and the second flute part and the third flute part so it was probably about 48 parts i had to make for this i think which is a lot of work. I'll just say that much. For anybody who doesn't know that, it's a lot of work to do all by hand. It's a lot easier now with computer notation. 
for sure. Uh, but this was before that. So it was a, an incredibly generous gift that my teacher offered to do for me. In some ways, maybe life-changing. Yeah, well, and it was life-changing because... <laughs> so not only did he write out the parts, but I couldn't even show up until <laughs> the concert. Okay. So I'd written this whole thing with all these parts and all these things, and I show up to the concert um, when it was about a 100-piece band playing it. Wow. And um, so the stage was packed, the audience was packed, and not only did they play the piece, but uh, some of the other, um, the, the stagehands got a little bit into it. They added some lighting and all kinds of things. And it, man, just sitting there hearing them play the piece, that was the true life-changing experience. Like that was really when like, this is one of the most amazing feelings I've ever had. What a thrill. And there were some surprises in it. All better. That's the thing that's almost always been the case for me. It's a little different now, but almost always been the case is the music sounds better than I think it's going to sound. Wow. But, you know, why not? Of course it does, because you have actual people playing the, yeah, the yeah. notes. It's, it's more interesting than what's in my head. And just to have 100 people all sort of coordinated there, realizing your sort of vision, it was a thrill like none other. Yeah, okay, so I have to admit. You've lived through this many times since then. Yeah. But has it ever equaled that moment? of that feeling that to to hear it back um there's been a, a few along the way a few maybe nothing quite as fresh as that one though and then then you think okay i want to do this yeah. i want to become a composer i can't imagine that being an easy thing <laughs> <laughs> so for you to say this is what i want to pursue mm -hmm. How difficult was it to go down that path and to follow that dream? I don't know if, if difficult is the right word, I would say. Um, I'm a pretty make up your mind and just do it kind of person. Okay. So um, what ended up, I would say the first difficulty I, I encountered um, so this was in my first year of my undergraduate degree. I was there to study trauma performance it was a very good school had an excellent composition department and I right at that moment decided that I wanted to be a double major right so my first difficulty was to get accepted into the composition program at Eastman and but that also involved um which ultimately became the most difficult aspect about all of this was you know, talking to my trombone teacher at the time who'd accepted me into a four-year program. He only accepted one bass trombone in each year. Mm -hmm. So, uh, which meant I got like really good positions, could play in the orchestras and do all the things at the school. It was great. Him saying like, okay, yeah, I'm a trombonist, but actually now I'm also a composer and I'm going to be studying now with all these other teachers too. So he was supportive um, and interestingly, the, the composition program wanted me to drop my trombone performance degree wow. and wanted me to be solely composer. Because? Because you only have so many hours in the oh, day. Okay. I think that's ultimately what, that's, that's what I'm trying to say, uh, what the, the biggest conflict is, is that there's only so much time in the day to be able to do anything. And that's been my sort of life's difficulty has been right. juggling many, many different activities. Okay, so and, when they said yeah. drop, you need to drop, drop playing trombone. Yeah, I said no way. I said no way because I, I still was planning on being a, an orchestral trombone player. 
Okay. I just wanted to include, because I was at this amazing school, and I knew I was only going to be there for the next three years, I wanted to, you know, I could study with Sam Adler and Christopher Rouse, uh, some uh, Sid Hawkinson, um, Joseph Schwantner. I mean, these are all like world famous composers. I, I uh, and I knew people who were studying with them. Right. And I was like, oh, I, w- I would like to be able to do that too. And I was paying a lot of money to go to school. So I was like, might as well get as, as much out of this as I possibly can. So, so how did you manage the time? How did you, do- you just didn't sleep? Barely, to be honest. I almost had a nervous breakdown to be, um, it was, it was actually pretty tough because first off I had to do my composition degree. I mean, there certainly was overlap between yeah, the yeah. degrees. Um, but the composition degree did bring in a whole bunch of, of other, um, courses that I had to take particular with music theory and music structure and the form and all that kind of thing. And also uh, the composition program there believed that you should be a fairly well-educated person in order to be a composer. So I had to take a number more humanities courses right. than I did for my performance degree. And I had to do that all in three years because I had already done my first year as trombone. And so it was very, very busy. And the average, I think, credit hours that people had there were like I think 110 to 120 when you graduate and I was up around 160 Jeez. yeah because I also did a lot of chamber music and that sort of thing so <laughs> it was yeah I played in two chamber groups um, so yeah it was a borderline um, nervous breakdown at the end but I made it I got my degree I actually after all of that I didn't actually get the accreditation of, of, of having the composition degree because I missed one class wow I, I'd made a mistake in in administratively <laughs> I thought that this course would count for a particular category and it didn't so what did that mean did that mean anything ultimately it didn't mean anything because right. I still got my undergraduate degree it just says in trauma and performance it just didn't say in trauma and composition so you got, get out of school is your priority now to be in an orchestra or is the priority to become a composer or both it was kind of both at that point um when I when I got out of school, though, um, it's it's hard to just jump in and start making a living. Uh, different people have different views on how right. you should do this. Some people have the say, stay in school until you get a job. That's a that's a very sort of orchestral player kind of mentality because when you're in school, you can be just practicing all the time. Right. And especially when you get in all the way through, all of your teachers are going to be very sympathetic that you're going to be wanting to take additions. So you can be in a place where you're practicing all the time, getting instruction, and then running off and taking every edition you can. So just keep doing that until you get a job. Um, Similar in composition, too, although the job would be more like a teaching job. But That's one way to do it. But for me, it was a little different um, because, well, I'm not exactly sure what the well the main reason is because I wanted to live too a bit I didn't I wanted to get out of school right and I've been telling people you know like um it's amazing like when you really reflect on it when I got to that age when I think I was 23 I'd been in school since I was like five (laughs) yeah my whole life I'd been in school I wanted to experience life without without being in school with like no school there's no school coming up you're just on your own. And so I did that, and I, I, I got my, my day job, you know, um, which was waiting tables, which I already started doing. But I was a waiter, actually, for quite a few years to, to make ends meet. Okay. And then how did you feel about that? Did you just see it as a temporary thing? Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, it was fun. What I liked about waiting tables is really high energy, and all all you leave is you leave the place with a you know a pocket full of cash and some fun stories. You know, <laughs> it, it was great. And a lot of friends who were waiters, we'd meet up afterwards. I I liked to party a lot back then, and that was actually right around there. I met my wife, who I'm married to now. So we were having a lot of fun getting to know each other. Are you playing music at all at this point? Yes. Okay. Uh, I was I was just starting to. Um, freelance a little bit um one of the first groups i formed was a brass quintet so which we ended up playing for nine years together it's called the trillium brass quintet i think it was nine years and that's how i met my wife actually she was in that group so she called me for that and that was actually a very serious uh chamber group we did a lot of memorization we went to bamp for a couple of summers to train made a couple of recordings so um, I was also just starting to get into the freelance world of orchestral playing. Okay. Um, so you come out of school. Did you have yeah. any idea, based on the school experience, and, and I don't know if you did any freelance work at that point, of uh, what it was to be, what it was like to be a full-time musician or to make a living being a musician? Did I have any experience of that? Sir? Did you have any idea what that would entail? <laughs> I, I think to answer honestly, no, okay. I, I really did not. Um, so that was maybe a part of, of why I wanted to get out of schools. So I wanted to live and, and see what it would be like to live. Even though I was working as a waiter, I was also, it had a very freelance kind of life. So I was getting to understand what a freelance life was right. like. Um, I could certainly somewhat envision what it would be like to have a job in an orchestra um, because that's you know you get your schedule at the beginning of the year and there's all kinds of guaranteed work and and and, and job protection once you get past your probation period but I this mean, is I not an easy that. thing to get into an orchestra no it's very very hard and you have to do additions and i ended up actually doing very few professional additions because i think i actually fell in love with the freelance life right and i fell in love with doing my own projects and i i trombone started to become very different for me over the years you know it started to pull me in other directions so freelance so somebody would be one of the trombone players of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra would be going away or they need one or two players and you go in that would be a freelance job that that would be an example of a freelance job for sure somebody might want a trombonist in a commercial studio work or whatever that's right Um, so I can understand that. What about the composition side? So, mm-hmm. sorry, if we go to the orchestral side, it really means doing an, doing uh, an audition and then getting in that way, which That's is right. a difficult process. For for you to become a composer, what did that entail? Because it's not like you just write stuff and throw it out there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could do that, but sure, that's not going to really get you any money. Well, one of the first things I did in my composition side was uh, I did enter some competitions. I've, I've never been one to enter a lot of competitions, but it is a way that you can uh, have potential to, right. to, to reach people. And I was very fortunate to be a finalist for the Winnipeg Symphony Composer Competition. Um, this was actually my first year coming out. This is when I started waiting tables, too. Wow. So... Um, the Winnipeg Symphony performed my first orchestra work, which I'd written at Eastman uh, as my undergraduate, and it ended up winning the competition. So that was that was a real thrill, and it was certainly an, did put me on the the map of of composers. And 
but for me in my composition career, what's maybe been the most beneficial is that I have been a performer. Hmm. So a, a, a number of my commissions have come from my colleagues. You know, I'll be working with them. Um, and I will either offer to write them a piece or they'll come to me. Would you be interested in writing a piece? But many of them come from my colleagues. In fact, almost all of them, when I, when I really start to think about it, at least in those, those first years. And for instance, the brass quintet I was, I was telling you, I played in while well, I wrote pieces for them. Right. So, uh, I also was the artistic director of a, like a contemporary music presenter. So we would it was called Earshot Concerts. Uh, I, uh, alongside my friend Keith Denning, we put together about 17 concerts over a number of years and all of contemporary music. And we wanted to showcase our own works, but I would write, write pieces for, for, for that and get them out. So that's another way as a composer, you just, you know, that's the real Philip Glass kind of thing to do. You just you put your ensemble together and you just play your music, you know, you just, you just get out there and do it and people come to the concerts and hear it and and you also became the composer in residence for the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. Right? Yeah, it was quite a few years later. Yeah. Okay. So how does that ha- and what how does that happen and what happens when when one becomes a composer in residence? Uh, well, that's a was an uh, official job application. Okay. So they just uh, uh, I just applied for the job. And then they say, okay, we want you to write X number of pieces for. The- the next year or whatever it was uh well first there was a contract that had certain obligations in it um they're all going to be a little bit different for these sorts of jobs but with vancouver the um i'm trying to remember what they asked it it seemed very small to me as i like to tell people i did about 600 percent of my contract when i was there (laughs) So um, I think at first they were like, write a five-minute piece the first year and a 10-minute piece the second year. And then if you're accepted for a third year, like it was a two-year contract extendable to three. Right. And if you're extended to the third year, then you write a 20-minute piece, something like that. And so that was one, that was a com- the composing side of it. You were also, um, they had a, a series called the Roundhouse Concert Series, which is all contemporary music. And I actually was the the principal curator for that series. So I got to program three concerts each year. Uh-huh. Um, and which was a wonderful, I, I really enjoyed that a lot about that job. And I was also involved with pre-concert talks at some of the orchestra concerts. I would do publicity events at times. You are a little bit of a figurehead when you're the composer in residence. You, you, you're definitely not anywhere close to where the conductor or the artistic director is, but you do do public appearances and, and sort of speak on behalf of the orchestra. When, when the first piece of music that you compose in school gets played by the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra and it wins, it must tell you that you, you've pursued the correct path, or it must be a, it must be a nice proof to, that you made the right choice. But I can't imagine it's easy being a composer. Right. Did you ever doubt that? Did you ever think, whether it be pursuing being a player or being a composer, was there ever a time you thought, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I ask this to everybody. I'm not picking on you. No, no, it's okay. Uh, to be honest, I've had sort of uh, sometimes more of that over the past five or six years than I had before. Um, it's, it is a tough haul to earn a living, for sure. And uh, I, I have decided to pursue that freelance life, which means I constantly have to be looking for work. Right. I've never applied for a university teaching job, for instance. I mean, I consider it sometimes. 
but I've never actually done it. I I start to worry about the things I would have to give up right. in order to do that kind of a, a position. But there's also tremendous financial security in a job like that, which I so so it is tough at times. Um, I'm also not you know the best at marketing and that sort of thing, so I I sometimes wonder what I'm doing about that. But um, but but like. Yeah. You're a busy man. Like we've been trying to do this yeah, interview yeah, yeah, for yeah. a while, and you're, yeah. you're, 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 it was very hard to get a hold of you. Um, I guess that doesn't mean that you're making tons of money, but but obviously you're in demand, and there is people asking for you to do. At this point, are you more of a composer than a player? For sure. Okay, um, and I, that's that's your choice. Mm, I, I, gosh, I mean, so many of these things, the way they turn out to me are just the way they've turned out. I can't predict the future. Um, but I, this year, uh, I was very busy because I had a huge, one of my biggest commissions that I've ever had to finish in a very short window of time. What's considered short? What's, what's a window of time? I had about four months to compose a hour-long work for orchestra and choir. Wow! So, so when you get something like that, do you how do you break that down to say, okay, I need to do this? It's I got four months. Yeah. What do I need to do? Like, how does that play out? I just wake up every day and go get to work, um, and and so much. So I, I actually also add into my life um, occasionally, and I did it twice with this particular project. I go to the cottage and do Cabin in the Woods composing. I don't even take my phone, no internet, and I just simply work on music 24-7 with interrupted with with sleeping and maybe go for a swim or a walk and that sort of thing, <laughs> make some food. Um, so I do bring that into my life, and for this project I had to do that twice in order to get it finished. Um, and also remember, it's not just the composing of the music, it's the publishing of it as well. I have to create all the score and the parts that right. are acceptable for a professional performance, which is, for a work like that, a very demanding job on its own. Tell me about having to go to the cottage and escape and mm-hmm. do the 24-7. What happens in that? Is it You go up there and then you just say, okay, starting tomorrow, that's all I'm going to focus on. Yeah. Is that an easy, like, what's the process of that? Is that an easy thing to do? Or um, do you go through self-loathing and you go through things <laughs> where you go, oh, this isn't working, I hate this. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, of course. And then when you know when it's the right direction, like, do you know immediately? Wow. Um, this is kind of like the, almost like existential questions about doing this. Um, I think I'm like many artists, it's very, very difficult at times. Like sometimes you think you're just the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, like, ah, oh, I just love what I'm doing. And other times I think, ah, oh, this is the most derivative garbage I've ever seen in my life. Um, I guess at this point I've learned to kind of muscle through it, you know, just keep going. Um, it's also good when you have a really big project because then maybe you can just switch over to another section to keep it fresh. Um, but you, you kind of, in your mind, have an idea of what each section is that you can just go, oh, I'll go to part three. Sure. I mean, it's it's an evolving process, right? It's always an evolving process. So you'd have to ask me that question at any specific moment, like where I'm at. Like yeah. if it's at the very, very beginning... 
well, then it's at the very, very beginning. I don't have many things. And then the ideas evolve in different, different ways for each piece. I don't actually have a formula of how to write music. Every time it's a new process. Wow. And I like to think that comes out in my music and that yeah, although there's certain tendencies I, I have, certain kinds of rhythms I like, certain kinds of harmonies that you'll hear, I, my, my, I think my pieces all sound quite different from each other. And that's a very conscious thing. I just, I really like being confronted with newness and freshness in every time I write. And if I feel like I'm doing something that I've done before, it feels almost um, like I'm deceiving myself. So if I come to you and say, I need you to write something for my orchestra or my ensemble, and I want it to be about winter, how quick you, quickly can you, like, does something come to your mind immediately that you think, okay, I have some ideas? Or does it, let me go to the cottage, I'll be back to you in two weeks? <laughs> well, I just got some ideas when you said that, right? Oh, I instantly like that. Thought, yeah, yeah, okay. I instantly thought about, you know, some violin harmonics and some crotales right away to get a crystalline kind of quality of sound. Um, wow. Ideas actually come very fast to me. Um, Once again, the blink. Yeah, it's that blink. And I trust it a lot. I have a lot of trust. And so, you know, that I might write that piece now. <laughs> you laugh, but I might write that piece now. Because it came into your head. Yeah, and, and I'm like, oh, that'd be... An, actually, I should write a piece about winter, I was just thinking. You know, that'd be really nice. Orchestra piece. Oh, maybe I'll do a seasons. But is it is it at this point, because you get commissioned, right. like how, how much of what you do is, I want to write something for the sake of me writing something versus these commitments that you have for commissioned works it's surprisingly well blended oh okay so you still have that opportunity well in the sense that um most of the commissions i do now are things that i've proposed right okay. so i go to people go to go to ensembles with ideas i say i got an idea you know um I can give you a couple of examples right now. I'm uh, working on a, a piece for all ages, um, like a, a sort of a children's sort of show for the Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra, and it's going to be a setting of Bill Peet's The Caboose Who Got Loose. Right. And it's a story I read a bunch of times to my kids when they were young, and I love it. It's really fun. It's got tons of energy. And it's got a moral, a moral story in it, which is, is nice. I think when you're I'm working with kids, I like it to have a, a moral dimension. And um, I just, I proposed it to, the, to the, them at the Calgary Philharmonic, you know, and I, pro I proposed them probably five ideas. And um, they chose it because somebody in the, on their board or somebody who was looking at it just was one of their favorite stories to read to their grandchildren. <laughs> So boom, now I have a commission, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I said the idea out, it was, was worthy enough to them to put on the docket and say, okay, here's a bunch of ideas. Other composers are giving ideas. This one, one was the one they chose in this particular circumstance. And it's all sort of coming together with the contract. But this is, you know, uh, a few years in the planning, you know, for it to eventually come to the final. Right. But how, how long did it take you that you could just send something to the Calgary Symphony and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm a, co a composer, yeah. and that that would, and they would seriously look at your work and say, "Oh, yeah, he yeah. used to do that, or he did that." Therefore, it's worth looking at. Well, I mean, I, 
I, uh, Vincent Ho is the uh, composer in residence there. I've right. known Vince for a long time. So he's a colleague. So I, it's, it's always much easier. I, in fact, I, as I you know, said before, it's not just colleagues in the performing area. I also have colleagues in the composition world. Right. Um, I almost always approach people I know. I'm almost, I'm never, I'm not really a cold call person. And that, that could be detrimental to me in my career. I don't know, but I just feel kind of funny just cold calling somebody out of the blue. Um, So it was Vincent. And to be honest, I think he approached me for asking me, I I can't can't quite remember how that all came down. Um, And I also understand that there was actually a a few other projects that sort of came up and were maybes, but they didn't come through. So, so this is the finally something has come through between my relationship with Vince and the Calgary Philharmonic. So, you know, that's, it's, it's often a bumpy road. I have certain, like, I just proposed to write a violin concerto, uh, for, uh, Benedict, um, in, um, the, she was the concertmaster of the Kitchener Waterloo Symphony. I've had a long, extensive relationship with that 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 orchestra, so it was very comfortable for me to ask them. Um, it's just I I don't want to ask too much because I don't want to be too pushy. Yeah, but yeah. This will be now my fourth piece I've written for them. So. Wow! And that's an orchestra that I played with, so that's how actually I met them. So it's usually these kinds of chains of events that leads to the to the point where I can just call people up and say, "Hey, here's an idea." You know. Okay. So, one question: When I talk to songwriters about the mm-hmm. art of writing songs. And it's come up a few times. Well, oftentimes it's just making sure your antenna is up and then an idea will come to you and you just go with it and not hopefully edit until it becomes somewhat complete and then go back and edit the piece to become a, a better song. Sure. Is that a completely different way of thinking to what you might compose? It's quite different. Um in I have done a little bit of songwriting too, so I know a little bit about that, and that's a little more going into say the band world. Right. So when I work with my bands, it's usually first off it's voluntary. Nobody's getting paid to be there. You're it's a voluntary situation. So everybody loves to be there, and they tend to be dumping grounds for all kinds of creativity. Right. So lots of songwriting, lots of uh, of this. It's a lot different when you're approaching an orchestra. Like it's a whole ordeal to get to that moment where you have that fully paid orchestra there, yeah. unionized, ready to play your your music. So, um, I can have any, I can have as many ideas as I want. But if I actually want to hear them played by a professional orchestra, it has to be go through a lot of convincing. Whereas a songwriter can in their home home studio, and a lot of songwriters uh, they'll play guitar and drums and little bit of bass they can actually pretty much lay the whole song down if they want or they're going to have a band that they can work with and perfect the song and then just press record boom they've got a song i mean like uh what's her face uh billy eilish isn't that her name yeah and her brother in their bedroom you know you you can't do an orchestra piece like that like i mean you (laughs) could you could synthesize the sounds and everything sure i mean that would be possible but to have a live concert with it's it's an it's a huge expense actually, and I understand this because I work in orchestras as well. Like I work on planning concerts and and curating concerts and budgeting concerts right. and helping fundraise for them, and it's a it's a really big deal. So it's in terms of the how the composer fits into it, um, it's just a much more arduous process to get that eventually written. Right. Well, that which makes sense. I mean, yeah. it's a bigger bigger thing. So. Yeah. 
and it sort of does impose on you that 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 wall of, of potential I mean I could just sit down and write a piece if I want in fact I'm actually sort of sketching out a piece right now that I'm just writing for myself like an orchestra piece Wow. Like I'm not even looking for a commission per se. I'm. It's just something I'm interested in writing, and it's just sort of on the on the on the slow burn in the in the background. And I I revisit it. And the reason I can do that with this piece is it's very different than anything else I've written. How many pieces are are you working on right now, including something like that? Like how many different projects are on your plate right now? I would say you know four or five, I guess. Wow, and then and so like various stages, and then you go. Let's say you're going up north this weekend. Yeah, and I know it's a family thing, but yeah, on on the on the trip you might get an idea. Does it automatically? Do you know which project it goes into? (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean they would all be very specific. Mm. Um, Yeah, yeah, certainly. I'll be thinking about a specific project and be thinking about it like. The sort of the random ideas actually hardly ever come up to me anymore. You know, like um, I'm just so embedded in my profession uh, that every like the the thing that I was so busy with in the fall, that that hour long piece for I mean, that started 10 years ago. I mean, it's like these are but I read a poem and I was like, I have to set that poem. So that it does, it does, it does happen. So that it was an idea, and then it was like, okay, how am I going to make this happen? <laughs> and ten years later, and ten years later it was, a, you know, the main thing is is getting an orchestra and a choir willing to put it on, and then getting the the funding to pay for it because it's so much work to do it. And um, I can't afford too much of my time to just be writing music because it's I just want to write music. I do a little bit of songwriting like that, a little bit of jazz writing like that. And a little bit of orchestra writing like that, but the vast majority of my work is is paid for concerts that have been curated and it's all set. And is there any other goal to this? Uh, you know, like obviously somebody says, "I want you to. We were going to commission you to do a piece for the Calgary Symphony Orchestra. You work on it, and it's done. It gets played, and hopefully, it might get played by somebody else. I hope so. Yeah. Um, but like, is that the extent of the goal? Is does it? As a composer, right. what would be the ultimate goal if I said commission you to do this? Well, my ultimate goal uh, pretty much always is to move the audience and have an emotional reaction. Like if I'm doing something that's do people feel are a benefit in their life, you know, to experience the music. Uh, I'd say first off, the most important audience to me is the performers themselves. I want Mm-hmm. to have that connection with them that they're just loving the music even if it's cha- really challenging that they're enjoying the challenge they're feeling the challenge is worth it and then to have you know people in the audience come up to me and and say that they felt something in it that was important to them right yeah i'd say that's that's the that is the the main goal for me entirely i i i used to think a lot more about myself and and the art and and these sorts of things but i'm I'm now much more audience focused well i can tell you from experience that piece that i saw in ottawa chamber festival moved me like it was i remember it i contacted you and said can i hear that piece again uh it was it was special to me like I, i was i was completely moved that evening um, I know I have to wrap this up, but I, I want to ask you, 
It's my final question. At one point or another, you achieved that dream of being an orchestral player, correct? Yes, although I never won a professional job. I never uh, went So it was far. always freelance. Always freelance, yeah. Do you ever regret the fact that you didn't pursue that or not? <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> um, there was, I only took two professional auditions in my life. And the, the second one, I, there's part of me that thought it would have been a pretty interesting life to get that job which was uh, for the ballet orchestra, actually. Oh. So they had a bass trombone edition. And uh, it was actually a pivotal moment for me because um, I was probably playing my best. I actually, I did have a one-year position with the Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony because their uh, bass trombonist took a sabbatical. Um, so they hired me for a year. So I did have the experience of playing a full season with an orchestra. You okay, know? so my question was going to be, yeah. what was that like to actually... You know, for that 15, 16-year-old kid who yeah. heard that orchestral music and thought, good God, this is amazing, yeah. to the kid who was sitting in that symphony orchestra and playing with the Kitchener uh, Waterloo Symphony. Uh-huh. What was that like? Oh, it's a, it's a thrill. I mean, I had some incredible experiences playing in the orchestra. Um, and sometimes I do miss it, to be honest. But there's only so many things one can do with their day mm-hmm. but when you're inside of an orchestra and it's playing really well and the music is intense I would say one of, one of the most satisfying experiences I ever had with that was actually when I was in high school and uh, although I had, did have some great professional experiences but I played in the Toronto Youth Orchestra and we did a, a little uh, jaunt down to Boston and we were playing, there's a few youth orchestras, and we were playing Bruckner's Fourth Symphony. And uh, oh, I'm actually getting a little bit of goosebumps right now, just remembering this story. We were at Convocation Hall in, um, I can't remember, one of the universities in Boston there. Beautiful round building with it had a lot of glass on the top. And I don't know if uh, you or your listeners know this, uh, Bruckner's Fourth Symphony. But we were in the last moment, and it's quite a... It's quite a thing to experience. It's it's slow moving and powerful and brooding and just expansive and it just grows and grows. It's really one of the biggest endings of all the symphonic repertoire. And as a trombonist, you're very involved with it. It's a big, meaty. He was an organist, so the music is powerful. And we started playing and we're playing and the music is growing and a thunderstorm was growing. <laughs> and suddenly the lightning started flashing and was coming through the windows up atop. And then when we, and, and it was, it, we were just in it. Like when you're in that, 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 uh, the collectivity of, of 80 to 100 people on stage, it was a big orchestra and everybody's just playing together with this united energy. Um, yeah, it's truly one of the most remarkable experiences. So luckily now for me though, I get to do this as a conductor. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing more conducting now. And I just conducted a concert that I had about 170 musicians on stage back wow. in uh, December uh, with a choir and an orchestra. So I still get these amazing experiences and I love performing music. Like it is, it is like one of the, one of my happiest places to be, to be honest, is to be on stage making music. I can imagine. Yeah. I much, I actually, I, uh, people are surprised by this. But if I'm having my music played, I would much rather be conducting than sitting in the audience. I don't generally like sitting in the audience while my music is being played. <laughs> because? It's too passive. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, 
I, I and then and then you're so much more aware of the audience's sort of judgment about it. Like it's, I feel a bit small and and sort of like, oh, I wonder if they're gonna like it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I I'm sadly a little bit too prone to that sort of that sort of thinking, you know. <laughs> um, but okay, I have. To, I said I was, that was that was the last oh, question, okay. but I'm gonna ask mm-hmm. you another one. Conducting. Yes. So I was watching the orchestra last night. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what the role of the conductor is. What does the conductor do? Right. Um, hmm. Well, a number of things. Um, first off is to just help give the time. Like, think of, a, of an orchestra. You're playing with play music with your ears. That's the most important thing. Right. Uh, think of a picture of the orchestra in your head right now, and then... On one side, you have, say, the, the trombones. They're sitting all the way in the back. And then way over on the other side, you have the first violins. Mm-hmm. All these musicians are supposed to be making music together. If you're using your ears entirely, you're actually hearing things a little bit behind. Right. It's actually very, very hard to, to, to coordinate all of those people on stage at the same time. So I would say the very first prime job of the conductor is to give a beat that everyone can see and follow. But not everybody is constantly looking at you. They're looking at the sheet music. They're looking at... Yeah. What... There's a lot of peripheral vision going oh, on. Right. Um, and also, you know, let's say you're doing a, an expansive piece, you know, uh, these people have various rests, so it's good to know to be say, okay, here's here's where you enter. And, and, and so so I'm just talking about a very prime level is to, to keep everyone together. And like when I had that 170 people, like if, if there was no conductor, it just, uh, I don't oh, know yeah. if it could have even happened. People are just too far apart from each other. Um, you have to, you have to just put a drummer in the middle, like like this, you know, so that everybody yeah, yeah. pulled together. Um, but of course the conductor has many other responsibilities. Um, one, you're interpreting the music which is um, happening more during the rehearsal. Is that correct? Yeah. Like uh, you're telling the, the orchestra what you want them to do during the rehearsal. Sure, right? sure. But you should also be expressing these things um, with your hands, with your body. I remember one conductor, Alain Trudel, um, who's also a famous trauma player, excellent conductor as well, uh, would always say, watch my stomach. Huh. You know, that's where the that's where the um, emphasis of the beat was. Um, I remember uh, some of my favorite conductors that I've seen. Um, it's really it's about the eyes. You know, they just looking, and you just are so inspired by the the passion. Um, I've had interesting conversations with with orchestra players about what what how much of an effect this has because you're not making any sound. Right. And they'll say, "Oh no, 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 no! Don't, don't, don't worry about all that expressive stuff. You know, just that's up. That's us. We'll, we'll do that. You just make sure to give good time and and, and don't, don't muck around because they're worried like you're gonna get expressive and you're gonna start floating in the beat and it's all gonna fall apart or something like that. Or maybe they're just like maybe it's a little too drama queen for them or something like that. But I've done my own little experiments for myself, where I've done, I've conducted and I just flat and kind of very very tepid emotions just good time good cues but still clean and transparent and then my more normal ooey gooey style where I'm just you know moving my hands and my face and just just doing whatever just 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 releasing myself to the the music and I I'm quite convinced that it sounded quite different when I was emoting and so you can certainly be doing that in the in the moment of the concert and I I really do think that some of those exceptional orchestra performances that you hear, 
it, it certainly is the players. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to undermine the players at all. It's it's ninety whatever percent is is the players. But that conductor, that focus of attention in the middle, mm-hmm. especially if, if they have the respect of the players. So that means the players are really paying attention. Um, can really elevate it to a kind of another level. You know, you can really bring up the whole musicality by your the way you're gesturing the beats, how you cue entries. When I'm working with the choir, just being with them in it, looking at them and trying to inspire them. Okay, so final question. Yeah. When you're up there, and let's say you're, you're conducting 170 musicians, what is going through your mind while you're doing this? Is it completely about the music? Are you thinking at times about what am I going to eat afterwards? Like, is it, are you totally focused in on the music? Um, that's a funny question. Occasionally the mind wanders. I, I, I find that most of the concerts I'm conducting, I'm always wishing that there was a bit more rehearsal time. So I'm usually (laughs) pretty, well, I mean, like in the sense that like, I better pay a lot of attention to what's going on right now. I got to hold everything together. I really want the performances to go at a very, very high level. So, uh, I'm trying to be really conscious of, of just doing the best job I can. Um, and you can do, in some ways, you can sort of do more thinking when you're a conductor um, about things. And the mind can wander. It's true. The mind can wander. But, you know, you have so many people relying on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be pretty focused as a, as, a con- as a conductor. So I'm really, I'm paying a lot of attention to what's going on. Pretty much just mostly in the music. But it must be such a great feeling when you say, I want them to do this, and they execute it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's actually really rewarding when you're, when you're working with the group, and then the kind of polishing you're doing, everybody's noticing it. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly the, uh, for instance, like certain details, like the, the more subtle details, right? Like when everybody plays a note together, that they, the way that they end the note, not just start the note, but the way they end the note is all together. And you get that sense of the orchestra is one. And if you can sort of help make that happen as a, as a conductor, it's, yeah, it's very gratifying. Yeah, wow. Enjoy it a lot. Scott, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much for making time to do this. Well, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.